Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 71. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $259 each, and everybody's favorite LTB coin is trading at .000094 US dollars each. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty dog, Maxwell, by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Longtime listeners, thank you so much for your generous tips, and new listeners, we hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I travel to the remote coastal village of Krabi in Thailand to speak with Bitcoin trader Venzin Kausan. Venzin is a market analyst and trader with over six years of experience in stocks, forex, and commodities trading. After completing school, he studied anthropology at the University of Cape Town, South Africa, and became interested in the pre-14th century Indian Ocean trade routes that connected southern African gold supplies with Southeast Asian porcelain and bead industries. This led him on to research in how cultures perceive value and the nuances of market psychology. Venzen divides his year between Africa and Southeast Asia and writes daily Bitcoin market updates for the Bitcoin trading community, xbt.social. All right, listeners, today on the show, finally, I am speaking with a Bitcoin trader. I am traveling all the way to Thailand to meet with Venzin Kausan. Venzin divides his year between Africa and Southeast Asia and writes daily Bitcoin market updates for the Bitcoin trading community, xbt.social. Venzin, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy. Thank you very much and pleased to be here. Yes, it's great to have you. So (laughs) before we started the interview, I think I heard a rooster in the background. Was that a rooster? That's a rooster. There are three of them, you know, and um, that's the way I wake up every morning. And you and me being on opposite sides of the uh, of time zones right now. Yeah, I'm having roosters while uh, you're having uh, the sounds of going to sleep. (laughs) Right. So it's 6.06 p.m. here and it's just after 6 a.m., there in Thailand. Now, what city are you in? You know, I'm actually not in a city. I'm in the south of Thailand uh, on the Andaman coast, uh, which is on the Indian Ocean. And I'm in a little village called uh, Krabi. Yeah. Wow. That sounds nice. Is it beautiful there? It is very beautiful. It's a picturesque place. Um, you know, most of the media images that you're going to see of uh, southern Thailand um is what I have here and right now. I've got the sun coming up red behind the the palm trees behind. That sounds so nice. I wish I was there. (laughs) I wish we could trade places. (laughs) If we could trade places, let's trade Bitcoin. (laughs) There you go. Oh, I like it. I like it. So let's get on with it. You are a Bitcoin trader and I have so many questions to ask you. I know you have so much to talk about, but let's start with, first of all, how did you get into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to start with? What led you here in your life and how long have you been here living and working in the Bitcoin sphere? 
John, it started for me, um, an interest in economics uh, came to me in a very strange way because I was actually into humanities studies. When I was a young, uh, young man at university, I uh, studied anthropology and um, I was studying at the University of Cape Town and, uh, you know, African archaeology and anthropology is alive with, with examples and the root of, of all humanity. And in studying that, I came across uh, one of my modules was about Indian Ocean trade routes. And um, in exploring this, I was absolutely fascinated because I learned about connections between Southeast Asia, where I am now, and Africa, where I was, uh, where I'd grown up as a young man and where I was studying, that there had been a connection a thousand and two thousand years ago of people trading. And the origin, the, one of the major reasons for the trade was gold that was being mined in Southern Africa, hmm. even back then, in that time. And as you know, South Africa was, um, during the 70s and 80s, a major uh, producer of gold. It's, it's since gone down because many of those gold seams have been um, fully exploited, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in developing this interest in, in trade, and I learned about where the gold was going and, and that beads were coming into Africa. So people were in Africa were, and gold seams were exposed back in those days. They were literally picking up gold and trading it on the coast, on the east coast of Africa for beads because they did not have the raw materials or the technology to make glass beads, hmm. but they could easily get rid of gold. As a, as a trade commodity, you know, which they did not really prize themselves. They didn't care about the gold. They wanted the beads. And it got me thinking about value. How do cultures describe value? And how do products move from areas of high availability to areas of low availability? You know, we talk about this thing about things being exotic. And so uh, the gold price, you know, had through centuries just climbed and climbed and climbed. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, in my becoming active as a, as a trader about six or seven years ago, I had, um, you know, one immediately, one, once you're in trade, uh, gold is always an, an instrument that is available and it's attractive because its chart moves. Um, you might get moves of 10 and $20 in a day. And um, every trader will go through that phase where they try out commodities because of their sheer uh, range of movement and the profit that you can see there. Well, there is a lot of loss in those kind of moves too, if you're on the wrong side of it. Right. And in about March or April of 2012, um, I received a, a newsletter from one of the um, services, the technical services I was subscribing to. And they said, hey, have a look at this chart. It's this thing called Bitcoin. And it's gone from $33, it had gone to $66 or $80. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely fascinated. And I thought to myself, I've got to learn more about this thing. Well, about a year passed, and uh, that had been just after the, the rally to, to $260 in, mm -hmm. in April. And that is when I truly became involved and engrossed because I could then download the client and I could install it. I could get my hands on my first bitcoins and I really saw potential in the chart. But more than that, I was fascinated by cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. 
and um, yeah, it, it even got me to learn C plus oh, plus wow. <laughs> language so that I could interact with this thing. You know, wow. so that is how I came to be. So you were a trader before Bitcoin came along. What led you into trading in your life from a humanities background? It was just the fascination with being able to make money. I think that every person has got a speculative aspect to their personality. I think it is human nature to want to speculate and to benefit from applying one's intelligence, whether it is selling sweeties on a corner stall or whether it is trading gold or whether it is buying a house and then later selling it for a profit. Mm -hmm. I think that is human nature and in my particular case it had been a profit motive of being interested in, in, in turning profit especially after I had become interested in Indian Ocean trade and seeing the value exchange and seeing the potential for having products that are considered commonplace in one part of the world and that are bountiful and moving them to a part of the world where they are considered exotic and less bountiful or they are scarce. Hmm. And it was thinking about that as a young man that then eventually led me to open a trading account and start trading currencies, you know, what we call forex, you know, now I wanted to well, the, the euro is going to go up for this and that reason, and I wanted to trade it versus the dollar. Mm -hmm. And then you start learning about the market forces. You're forced to read financial news. You start reading economics, and you start to identify trends and, and so on, and also learn what is a trader and how does a trader think. Hmm. And that was that was the journey for me, really. And I think it doesn't stop. Um, it's it's not a state you reach where you are fully developed. Um, I think every trader would say that it's about putting good rules in place mm -hmm. for doing your thing. Yeah. So not just responding to fear and greed, but actually learning to understand markets and learning to understand yourself and how you fit in with. Uh, you know, being patient and how you fit into it with uh, being intelligent and not being hasty and, you know, basically just having a good broad view of it and not making stupid decisions that cause you to lose money, I guess. As you say, I think the fascinating thing about trading, and I think a lot of cryptocurrency traders discover that um, from purely buying and selling. Later, you discover that there are ways to multiply those winnings and those losses via a margin trading, you know, and applying leverage to your trades. And then all of those things you just mentioned come into play. Uh, greed is multiplied, fear is multiplied, hope is multiplied. Hmm. In the end, the fascinating thing about trading is that you learn about your own emotions and your own personal impulses that drive you to do things. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you know what? I think what I learned when I did some trading early on with cryptocurrencies or alt currencies, alt coins and Bitcoin, what I learned early on was that it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and that was that whenever I would make a move to buy a little or sell a little, I was always doing the exact opposite of what I should have done. I had mastered it. So, you know, then I took the stance of, well, 
you know, I think George Costanza did this one time on Seinfeld. He said, everything I do in my life is wrong, so I'm going to start doing the opposite of what I normally do. And he started doing the opposite of what he thought he should normally do, and things were working out great for him. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I tried to do that. It's like second guessing, you know, and I can defeat fate, you know, I can conquer fate. I can be the master of fate. And still, even doing the opposite of what I thought I should do, I realized, wow, I lost again. I lost again. And I never lost big, thankfully, maybe testament to either my intelligence or my paranoia or both but uh, you know my fear at times was greater than my greed and that maybe is a safer place to be than letting your greed just grip you and take you onto the road of poverty I did not do it for very long and uh, I just resolved early on I am not a Bitcoin trader and I do not have the aptitude I didn't have the stomach for it and maybe part of that is that I didn't have the patience for it you know uh, patience is the key and should you ever come back to to trading which i think every person interested in in bitcoin is trading uh, whether they like it or not or maybe like it or not it's not the right word whether they realize it or not they are applying uh, assumptions about the market by saying i'm going to buy bitcoin now or i'm going to sell bitcoin now mm-hmm. um even just in their personal wallet that is uh, that is trading and I think that it is something that all people should be comfortable with and I think it's something that people can learn and some good uh, practices and best practices of running Bitcoin in your own wallet um, involves learning some basic rules of trade. And as you had said, patience is the key. There are various wisdoms around that. One of them is that in trading, patience is your friend and impulse is your enemy. Exactly as you had mentioned, and I actually received a a message from a trader um, yesterday uh, afternoon who asked me, "If Bitcoin keeps going up and up, and you know, in this time that we're talking is the time of the Greek um, default looming, and uh, this trader told me the Bitcoin just keeps going up and up, shall I jump in?" And I said to him, "Don't jump in. This is the impulse talking. What is your patience telling you?" You see, so we're all prone to those things. And you said, thank God you never lost big. You know, as a, as a trader and somebody who had started from not having been trained as a trader and not having studied economics, I had certainly learned the ropes by losing big. Oh, no. I've had to lose big a few times in my life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that's the way you learn. So if one has got the prudence never to play too big, I think that is an important key that every a Bitcoin owner and every Bitcoin enthusiast and every trader out there can take to task. Do not play too big. I agree. I think that's sound advice. You know, I think my regrets these days are that, for instance, when Litecoins were up to you know, $40 each or Bitcoin was up to 1200 over 1200 that I didn't sell some and realize that profit and take some of those winnings or some of those earnings and pay off some debt. But I held thinking, well, Litecoin's at 40. Certainly it's going to go to 100 (laughs) and Bitcoin's at 1200. Certainly it's going to go to 12,000. So I was afraid to sell because it would possibly go higher. And I was greedy thinking that, well, of course it's going to go higher and I'm going to be able to make more money down the road. So I still feel that fear and greed stopped me from selling maybe when they were at their all-time high. And we can talk about that in a minute. But so what 
in your opinion, what happened with Bitcoin in 2013? What caused that crash from 1200? You know, these uh, words you mentioned, fear and greed and hope and, and exuberance. Um, it is so strange how human psychology works. And um, this is what drives the, the, the chart. You know, a lot of people think if you read the popular media, you might get people saying that, you know, well, the block rewards are halving. So miners are not driving the Bitcoin price as much. All people believe that we've now got Dell and Overstock accepting Bitcoin. So surely now the price is going to rally because they believe that merchants are driving the price. What I would say in response to what you said earlier is that it is fear and greed and hope and exuberance that drives the chart. And as you'd also mentioned, one is often out of sync with what the price chart is doing and what you're feeling, what your psychology is telling you. One is often exactly at the opposite end of what is happening. Hmm. When it is high, you think it's going to go higher. When it is low, <laughs> you, you think, oh, surely this is going to go down more and you sell. <laughs> you know, so as you say, you, why had you not sold at 1,200? Um, and then, you know, I know one uh, developer who had mined Bitcoins uh, in 2011, and he had sold at that high of $33 per Bitcoin and he sold 50,000 Bitcoins. And, oh. and two years later, he was asking himself, why was I so scared back then? You mm. know. Mm. So these are the kind of emotions <laughs> that drive us and drive the path. Yeah, incredible story. And I think there are a lot of them out there. You had asked me what had happened in 2013 and uh, I had spoken about our psychology is out of whack with what's happening in the market. And this is absolutely amazing. I think those are basic human responses mm -hmm. and the, the, the chart just draws everyone along. It draws everyone along and people make these decisions and move the chart. In 2013, uh, Bitcoin had gone to 260 during April. Mm -hmm. And um, that had been its highest price at the time, wasn't it? And uh, that was absolutely amazing. I mean, that was a rally that no one had ever witnessed. No commodity, no price chart had ever done that. You know, gold had gone from, from 200 to 320 during the, uh, uh, during the 90s, the 1990s somewhere, and people were like, wow, gold is really rallying, that's a move. But Bitcoin did that in a few weeks, you know, not over a space of years. So um, that was absolutely amazing. It then came down, and I don't know if you recall that at the time in 2013, there was a lot of concern suddenly about regulation. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah, that was the hot topic. Regulation and banning. Suddenly people were starting uh -huh. to write fearful articles about it and everyone was talking about it and, you know, all of us thought about it. And I think that it was uh, Silk Road at that time was big in the news. Mm -hmm. And some of the Bitcoin uh, developers had gone and explained to the FBI and, and law enforcement agencies what Bitcoin is and, and how it works. Um, you know, and that there was all of suddenly, and FinCEN was out there. So there was suddenly all of this official 
interest in Bitcoin. Now, those authorities and those centralized uh, bodies did not yet understand that Bitcoin was censorship resistant, right? Right. And Bitcoin users, the average user who was not a developer and wasn't familiar with the protocol or with peer-to-peer -peer necessarily, did not realize that it was absolutely censorship resistant. So all of this concern about regulation and, and about banning of Bitcoin at that time uh, was founded on ignorance, shall we say. And the, and the Bitcoin community still had to learn that this thing was, in a way, untouchable, right? Yes, I think it was founded on ignorance, but of course, those people at the top who try to control how people think, how the masses think, certainly they were briefed very quickly by some really intelligent people working for them in tech, and they were informed very quickly, we can't censor this. Period. I think they found that out in the first couple of months, and therefore the only thing they could do was to move forward with a misinformation campaign uh -huh. that I think ran parallel to the truth that most people didn't understand that it could not be censored. So I think that that misinformation and that misunderstanding, I think they were neck and neck there. <laughs> yeah, well observed. I think you're, you're summarizing it very well. And that indeed was the case. As you describe it, I can see it. They were huffing and puffing while people were thinking they're in a house of straw, but they were in a house of bricks. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. And did you notice in the chart that Bitcoin had kind of hit a low during, was it during June of 2013? And then it started climbing and it reached something like $120 uh, from, from $60. And then it kind of traveled straight for a few months in a kind of a, a quiet market period. And then suddenly it dropped. And that drop coincided at that time with the bust of Silk Road. Mm -hmm. So what is funny to me about that and how it reveals psychology is it does not matter that Silk Road got busted and it does not matter that people thought that Bitcoin was vulnerable to these authorities. The minute that Silk Road got busted, it is as if the whole Bitcoin community, the whole user base, as if they were busted. Right. <laughs> and they reacted by selling Bitcoin, right? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, because it's like, oh my God, the feds are at the door. You know, and, and <laughs> they sold their Bitcoins and nothing happened. There were people waiting with their orders down at those lows and they started buying in. And that rally did not stop from October the 5th, I believe, until November 24, maybe it was later on November 28th. That rally did not stop and it was phenomenal. The world had never seen that before. And there certainly isn't any price chart with that kind of move in it. Hmm. Now, what happens... What happens at the end of November, again, is a regulation event. People say that China had banned Bitcoin or the People's Bank of China had imposed regulation on, on Bitcoin. And that is what crashed the price from there. Now, I had studied that chart very carefully at that point in time. And what is interesting is that the regulation, the news from China, only comes in three days after the market had made a top. In other words, the market was already declining by the time the People's Bank of China sent out, you know, announcement that they were going to 
stop Bitcoin from being freely traded by certain businesses and banks. It's funny how, with everything you're talking about, how those three days in the minds of most people don't matter because, you know, from Monday to Wednesday to Thursday of a given week, that happens really quickly. <laughs> but three days is, is pretty substantial with what you're referring to. Basically, if you're looking at the chart and you're identifying the the price waves as they come down in a very textbook fashion, you say this is a decline in force. And um, it's nowhere else in that rally. And then suddenly after three days, big news about China, and then the market really drops, and people associate the two as happening around the same time. Absolutely. Right. So what do you think caused the drop? You know, the one that I can see clearly in the chart is that there had been a relative strength index peak in late November. And a few days later, the, ma the market made a higher high, but the RSI, the, uh, the relative strength index, which is an indicator that a lot of traders would be familiar with and one gets them on most charts, the RSI makes a lower high. It doesn't confirm that high in the Bitcoin price. And I think a lot of traders, I think a lot of the big money that was was speculating on bit on, on that particular rally saw that technical indication and said it's time to take profit mm -hmm. and that's that is something i can identify um i think also the figure 1200 or 1160 is psychologically significant and had caused a lot of people to say whoa this has gone very far what is your take on how the price went up so high because a lot of people believe that it had to do with the trading bots there at Mt. Gox, that this was falsely inflated and that Bitcoin was never worth anywhere near $1,000 and that the trading bots, Willie and whatever the other name was, had something to do with it. What do you think? You know, John, I had encountered that argument a few times and it was quite popular back then. And as somebody involved with, with markets and with charts, for a long time, the price waves that unfold in every market um, are similar and they are visible across markets since markets began. You know, as, as if you look at a price chart from the 1940s or you look at a price chart of rice being traded in Japan back in the 1800s or 1700s, the price charts always look the same. And Bitcoin's price chart is the same as every other chart that went before it. The thing that is amazing about Bitcoin's price chart is only that it is faster and it is more extreme. But the proportion between prior waves and later waves are consistent with all price charts. So I do not think there's any irregularity in the price chart or in the movements in the price chart. And certainly you say we don't know what will happen in the future. According to what's already printed in the chart, Bitcoin is going to go much, much higher. I would put it above $10,000 easily down the line. We don't know when that'll be, but that is certainly possible. As for the, as for the notion that those were trading bots that had pushed the price up there, well, one can speculate that the exchanges were applying or were running fractional reserves mm -hmm. and therefore they could keep inflating the price and, the, and that those trading bots, those algorithms were introducing fake Bitcoins 
into the price chart or that the price chart was simply being ticked up with no real money behind it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there is sufficient evidence for that kind of uh, statement. I would rather say that the market cap of Bitcoin, which I believe is somewhere around 3.5 billion US dollars, mm-hmm. I think is sufficient to cause that kind of price movement, especially if one looks at how attractive Bitcoin is as a speculative instrument. Imagine that you're a hedge fund or that you're a, a bank trader and any trader for that matter, but specifically a hedge fund trader, you learn about a commodity that can move $100 in a day. Hmm. That is unheard of. You hear about a commodity that is unregulated. In other words, there is no body, there is no SEC, there is no London metal exchange that oversees and controls and manipulates its price. And you also learn that there is no central authority on this peer-to-peer Bitcoin. That is the speculator's wildest dream come true because it means what you put in will reflect in the chart. Hmm, yes. And I think when a, when a rally grips a, 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 an instrument, when it grips uh, Bitcoin like it did or it does with gold or with the Australian dollar, it starts moving and people pile in. And all the evidence is there that that is human psychology that formed that wave up and it was exuberance and it was all of the hope that people had suddenly seen in Bitcoin, I believe, at that time. All of that hope and all of that exuberance, um, you know, it had been so extreme that we then got the subsequent 18-month decline, you know, which is kind of like you, what goes up must come down. It's very exciting to think that if we see this exuberance, if what you say is true, we see this exuberance happening again. And as we see the price going up a little bit now, that we see it going up to 500, then 1,000, then 2,000, and 5,000. That would be a very exciting time. Uh, Of course, we would then see a crash as we're going to see the the peaks and the valleys all the way up to, you know, if it could go up to 10,000, obviously that's going to be a series of peaks and valleys. The idea of that exuberance is a very exciting idea. Now, what about the idea that a lot of people propose that there are whales that are controlling things? So, for instance, let's say that Satoshi Nakamoto is still alive. We don't know that, right? Satoshi may not exist, and Satoshi's Bitcoin may be in wallets that only Satoshi knew how to access, and they may be locked in those wallets till the end of time forever, right? But let's say that Satoshi is still around, and Satoshi is watching what's going on. Well, Satoshi would be smart enough, I like to think, to have figured out a way to have 20,000 trading bots trading all of Satoshi's wealth in Bitcoin and trading as 20,000 individual traders spread out over all of these exchanges and looking like 20,000 individuals trading such that Satoshi or whoever he might work with, he, she, it, they, sets this up so that this trading happens in a way that looks natural and yet it has the ability to move the markets to make it really go up the price and to make the price then really go down is that a possibility this is a possibility this is um i mean it is it is fantastical it, it involves <laughs> a lot of coordination it involves a lot of um 
uh, interaction between disparate bodies. Um, it is a grand plan, but certainly somebody could orchestrate that if they're a central figure, if they had thought of this plan from the start. I, I see it as possible indeed, but I think there is more evidence for other market forces and other ways that value is being ascribed to Bitcoin. And if you don't mind, I can talk about that and sure. it'll cast some light on what you're talking about, Wales. Yes. Well, let's start with a fundamental analysis of Bitcoin now. In, in analyzing markets, one can take often three points of view. There is what they call the three pillars of market analysis. And the three are sentimental analysis. You know, if somebody is positive towards a stock or towards a currency and their positive sentiment is shared by a lot of people, people can buy into that thing and the price will go up. Another is technical analysis in, for example, you can see that Bitcoin goes down to a certain level and then it goes up again. And then whenever it returns to that same level, people start buying in. So there mm -hmm. is a technical price level at which people come in. Or if there is a peak in a rally and then your RSI indicator doesn't confirm the high, that is a technical indication to sell. And one can analyze charts from that perspective. You can also analyze an instrument or a commodity or a currency from the point of view of its fundamental value. You know, they often speak about the books, a company's books reflecting its fundamental value. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, these are, are sort of terms that everyone is familiar with. But if we look at Bitcoin's fundamental value, um, it is fascinating because there is there is no other commodity money with this kind of fundamental. It is cryptographically secure. It is uh, it involves mathematically provable consensus. Mm -hmm. It has got a set. It has got a Bitcoin has got a set supply, a limited supply over time, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. Plus the fact that it is censorship resistant and decentralized in a peer-to-peer -peer infrastructure just means that the Bitcoin fundamentals are so strong that the whatever valuation one puts on Bitcoin will never be enough because the Bitcoin fundamentals are so strong that this is useful from a monetary point of view. This is useful from a transactional point of view, mm -hmm. it is useful from a contracts point of view, and it's useful from a social point of view, because if we look at how the blockchain is going to change our world, uh, a lot of the value of Bitcoin has not expressed itself yet, at least the value of the, the blockchain. Very true. Yeah. So with that kind of perspective, one can then see, well, does it need for somebody to manipulate its price up to 1000 and up to five thousand mm dollars -hmm. i think not i think that this is a natural consequence of bitcoin having this value to speculators and to society in general uh, so i believe the price movement in the chart is real um, it is subject to massive speculation and then one gets to the the uh, topic of whales and i think there are whales some of them can be identified mm -hmm. 
This episode of Bitcoins and Gravy is brought to you by our good friends at MoonshineBootWax.com. Made by hand in small batches right here in East Nashville, Tennessee, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is the original, all-natural, non-toxic boot wax with a scent of orange. Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is a proprietary blend of American beeswax and other fine, all-natural ingredients. It's specially formulated to feed and protect your leather while also offering an excellent, long-lasting shine. Whether it's your cowboy boots, your expensive wing tips, or your wife's favorite pumps, Moonshine Boot Wax is a must-have for gentlemen who care about their appearance. Moonshine Boot Wax is proud to partner with Community Food Advocates, a nonprofit organization working to end hunger by creating a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. Together with Community Food Advocates, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is making a positive difference in the Nashville community, one shine at a time. You can buy your very own 4-ounce tin today by going to moonshinebootwax.com. And best of all, you can pay using Bitcoin. I think a lot of people out there don't really know the, the nuts and bolts of how um, trades happen. You know, because for us as, as just individuals trading, you think, well, I'm going to buy now, and then when it's up, I'm going to sell. And, you know, if you're short trading, you'll say, okay, well, I'm going to sell, and then I'll wait three hours or I'll wait three weeks, and then I'll buy in again, you know, and make my profit on, on the, the, the price mm-hmm. decline. And that's kind of our personal interaction with the market. But, but then there are guys who are dolphins, you know, they have a lot of financial resources and it might be an individual or it might be three guys who put their money together and form a club. Mm-hmm. And they might say, right, let's buy when these conditions become true in the chart. And then suddenly you see an order in the exchange, uh, order book of a thousand Bitcoins and everyone's like, oh my word, that is such a, you know, Things are happening in the the Bitcoin market, you know. But behind the scenes, there are hedge funds and bank traders and many large players who are so large, who purchase and sell so much Bitcoin that they cannot just do it all in one go, right? So they've got to disguise their presence because the Bitcoin market is fragile because it's only small. The liquidity, the amount of capital in the exchanges and in the Bitcoin market is actually quite small compared to a lot of market instruments out there. Yes. So with it being fragile, these very large players cannot just reveal their hand or play everything at the same time because they could destroy the market and scare a lot of smaller traders away. Mm -hmm. And that is counterproductive, right? You don't want to shoot yourself in the foot. You want to preserve your Bitcoin market, even if you're the largest player. Okay. So what they do is to enter the market with very small trades over very long periods of time. Now, when I say long periods of time and small trades, the trades might be for 0.1 Bitcoin um, for 10,000 of those over three weeks. You know, when I say a long time, maybe three weeks, maybe three months. Uh-huh. And this is how they can slowly enter and they, they use uh, bots to do that work for them. Um, you know, and slowly they'll enter the market 
when they think it's an opportune time to start buying. And they might have communications with some other whales and say, right, in September or in January, we all start buying. And you take profit at 500 and we'll wait for the dip and then take profit when it goes up to 700 after that. Hmm. Um, you see, so these are the kind of dynamics that are happening in the market, behind the scenes. And people often say, oh, no. You know, when, when these things come to light that there are bots active in the market, say, oh, no, it's manipulated and there are uh -huh. non-human entities who are pushing this thing. <laughs> um, but after all, the chart conforms to how human psychology makes a chart. It's only that these guys, instead of buying all in one go and spiking the price chart and it dropping back down, um, they enter slowly over a period of time and then you know, the rest of the market kind of fills in and follows and you've got these price waves and that is what we observe in the chart and that is quite normal and healthy, I would say. Wow, that's fascinating to hear that inside look at it because like you said, I think most people who trade a little bit, you know, like when I was trading early on, you try to buy when it's low and you try to sell when it's a little higher and make a little bit of money and you're waiting a week or two or three and you're hoping it's going up or going down and you're not really thinking about anything except your own little world. And I think for people who want to be successful at trading, I think they have to take your philosophy and they have to be patient and they have to really be willing to understand what's going on and to be able to see the signs. I don't have that patience. I think most people don't. And I think probably there are a lot more little teeny and also medium-sized losses than there are little teeny and medium-sized gains. I think you're right. In order to trade successfully, one really has to have a winning formula and you discover it by making mistakes in the market and learning what works and what doesn't work. And then you also have to have rules and patience to say, in these conditions, I will not trade. Only when these conditions come true, it might mean that you don't trade for three months and mm. simply watch the chart, you know. Mm. And it's, it's applying that kind of discipline. And in order to apply that discipline, you've got to know what you're doing. And to know what you're doing, you've got to make mistakes in the market to learn. And the irony of speculation and learning how to speculate is that you can only do it by losing money. Because if you make a mistake in the market, you pay. Right. You know, so it's a cycle that requires some resources. So that's why I said a while ago, don't play big. If you're going to lose in the market as you learn, so play small. And when you find your winning formula, that's when you increase the stakes. I like it. And I like the fact that early on you said that you are still learning. You do not feel like you've learned everything there is to learn. But having said that, as a Bitcoin trader, would you put yourself in the category of being a Bitcoin trader expert? You know, um, to wear the mantle of the expert, um, I do not like to put that on myself, to don the mantle and say I am an expert. I would say that in my role in uh, xbt.social um, as the kind of lead analyst, and then I have all of the members contribute to the analysis and say, um, I don't agree with this aspect. Can we look at that? And they present their analysis. In this collaborative kind of way, the expertise uh, melts away because more heads make for better thinking, right? Yes. 
So your, to answer your question, um, I, refrain, uh, I refrain from calling myself an expert, but certainly a lot of people do refer to me as an expert, but I would not call myself the expert. I'm one of many, to put it that way. Okay, I think that's well put. So you write weekly articles for the Bitcoin market and updates, of course, uh, for the Bitcoin trading community, as we mentioned, for xbt.social. Tell our listeners, if you would, why they might want to get involved with xbt.social and what they can expect when they first get there and if there are ways through xbt.social, if there are ways that they can learn and start trading slowly as you advise with small amounts and uh, what kind of a resource is xbt.social for people who would like to get into trading bitcoin you know in stating your question you described xbt.social very well um i'm just gonna fill out and give you uh, my answer the um, first thing is that xbt.social is a domain name so you can type that in a browser xbt.social and it will take you to the website and it is a subscription service so that anyone can join it's 95 dollars per month i believe the way it was uh, set up and there is currently a discount code available at ccn.la and people can subscribe and put in their discount code and what they will get in return is membership of uh, xbt.social whereby they receive market updates every three hours they receive long-term uh, analysis so that we form a picture of what where is the market heading where is it at the moment the bitcoin market and what are the scenarios that are open that are probable in the future, in the next month, in the next three months, and in the next three years. Mm-hmm. And in this, from this perspective, um, it is not a forecasting service. It is not a trade signaling service. It is a service to explore the probabilities in the chart and then get everyone to input. And once there is a consensus, we start formulating a trade plan. So people will get the benefit of resources on the site. As I said before, the various analyses, they will get knowledge about how the exchanges work in terms of placing your orders, using margin, applying leverage to your trades, you know, so that you can multiply your winnings, how to safely enter trades, rules for trading. There is so much to it, but in a nutshell, those will give them a good foundation from which to trade then and then they're not alone because they're there in a forum with a lot of other traders who are taking the same trades you see mm-hmm. so it's a um i think the idea is really good the person who came up with it was david parker um newspaper man who had started ccn crypto coins news and um i was doing analysis for him and he said to me why don't we offer this and and you know away from all the chatter that you have in the comments, the discuss comments section at the bottom of your article, we can have those people who are really interested to take this forward and actually make those trades that become apparent. And he is the guy that set up xpt.social. And um, I think it's a good idea. And I think it works very well because it's not like people are paying for a 
prediction that might be true or might not be true. What we're doing is we're setting up trades for different scenarios. So in other words, with this Greece uh, default looming, the market can do a few things. We try to identify them and we start formulating trades for each outcome. Okay, so do you think that somebody, you know, because there are people out there that, you know, don't have $95 a month, but do you think for someone who wants to learn, they could subscribe for one month, $95, and just be an active participant for one month? Do you feel that one month of being with with xbt.social would be a benefit? Could they learn enough in one month so that they don't have to month after month after month, you know, keep putting out essentially $100 a month? Because again, a lot of people simply cannot afford it. By anybody's standard, that is a lot of money every month. The point being, um, and to answer your question is yes, they can subscribe for one month. There's no obligation to stay on and have to pay that. And they will in one month be able to read all of those resources and get a feeling for the way that good safe trading is practiced and we also have a method outlined there a method that i came up with for the bitcoin chart that i didn't discover but that was there and nobody else was using it and i formulated it into a method called the moving averages uh, trading method for bitcoin and they will be able to have access to that and comprehend it and apply it away from xbt.social. So yes, it is not okay. a service that that seeks to trap anybody or, or keep them there month after month. If they want to stay on, of course, they're welcome. And, and, and the more heads, the better. Okay. Um, but they will certainly be able to join for one month and get full value out. Um, and I believe they will make more than their $100 in a month you know, to justify paying for the next month. Okay. That's encouraging. I always like to look out for my listeners. It has happened on the show before in the past that I have recommended certain things that ended up being not so great, such as uh, Bitcoin Trader, the company that ended up ripping people off. But listen, I have two more questions before we go. First question, how is the situation in Greece, the situation right now currently affecting Bitcoin, in your opinion? Oh, my goodness. I, um, you know, that, that, that was very unexpected. And um, I'm sure you were surprised by the, the way that Greece had turned the tables on, on its creditors, you know, and its creditors, you know, might seem like a nebulous group of people. Uh, its creditors are not uh, a secret group. Its creditors are well-known banks. Its creditors are the International Monetary Fund the European Central Bank and also the European Commission. Those are the people who are squeezing the Greek people for more taxes for retirement age of 67 years old and who want to increase the the, the value-added tax rate on every purchase in every part of Greece. The Troika, um, the Troika, the Troika, the Troika. Yeah, no, I, listen, the I, troika let me tell you, <laughs> Venzin, let me tell you, I, I was not surprised because I've been listening to Giannis, right, and for months and uh, did a semi-interview <laughs> with him months back. But no, I've been listening to him and I've been following it fairly closely. And uh, this was not a surprise to me at all. This is what I expected. Well, you got, to, you, you got your ear to the, you got your ear to the ground and, and you then, got eyes to see because that situation I think surprised the IMF and it surprised <laughs> the European Central Bank because they thought they had Greece in a corner and they were squeezing and squeezing 
for more, for tougher austerity until it became cruel. You know, and Greece yes. uh, with a, 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 an elected socialist government a, and a populist uh, leader mm -hmm. who could not afford that as a politician. He could not afford to make those kind of concessions and expect to have his career live on. So, you know, they had that Saritza party had just turned the tables and it happened last Saturday, didn't it? Mm -hmm. and, and now we're facing a, a voluntary and a defiant a default by Greece on, on a decision on Sunday. And I think the effect on the Bitcoin price is clear in that it has, the moment that announcement came over the wire, the price started increasing and it started rallying in wave after wave. Now the waves are still small mm -hmm. and uh, one might speculate that they can end soon. You know, we don't know what's coming uh, up next. It's not possible to predict future events with any degree of certainty that would help you trade it. Right. But I think the effect is there in the chart in that it is going up because people are either fleeing to Bitcoin as a safe haven or some of the, the big money and, and a lot of Bitcoin users are saying, this is a period of uncertainty that has now started mm -hmm. and there's no game plan for it. Mm -hmm. And being in Bitcoin in a time like this is a good idea because Bitcoin has proven for the last six months that it doesn't want to go lower. It has kept mm -hmm. a base there at $215 around there. And I think the market has now got the sense that with world events, it's safe to invest in Bitcoin. And it's, I would say it's desirable. I think so, too. And it looks to me like a lot of people in the Bitcoin world, if they're aware of what's going on in Greece, they can see, wow, this taking the middle finger and holding it up to the Troika, <laughs> this is essentially yeah. the same thing that Bitcoin does to central banks is it flips the bird and it says, look, we're tired of being bullied. We're tired of being kept down by you because this is something that's been going on since the beginning of time and we are now wanting to cut those ties that tether us down we want to rise up we want to fly we want to be free i love the fact that it's greece that's doing this yeah right it's it's the birthplace of western civilization that is also changing western civilization evolving it yeah I, I see that, and I, I also think it's emboldening, it's, it's encouraging. I think Bitcoin's uh, potential and its place in the, in the kingdom of doing and, and for people power, I think it's got an important role to play, and mm -hmm. it's reflected in the price chart. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's not reflected in the price chart, but when things go wrong with a system that is out of whack with what people want, Bitcoin will reflect that. I think so. And you know, I can always tell people that watch a lot of television, if I ask them a question, go back a year or two years, and if I ask them about uh, unions, what do you think about unions? They'd say, oh, it's unions that are ruining this country, <laughs> right? Because they've been watching way too much CNN and Fox News. If I ask people now, what do you think about the situation in Greece? And I do ask people, 
all the time. Yeah. You know, and oh, what do they say? Oh, those Greeks, you know, they're so corrupt. And if they had just paid their taxes, you know, they're a bunch of tax evaders that really have just become so corrupt that anything bad that happens to them, they deserve it. And I can't believe they're not accepting these austerity measures. You see, they're lazy down there. They're know, lazy and, down and, there. And the European Central Bank and the IMF, they're trying to help them. And the Greeks are just lazy and stupid and they don't get it. So that's a person that listens to a lot of television. And I say to them, I say, look, if you want to look at corruption, you know, let's go to Mexico City. Let's go to Washington, D.C. Let's go to London, baby. Let's go to London if you want to talk about corruption, right? Yeah, let's look at the ones who are hiding in plain sight, right? The ones who are right there in your face and you don't see them because the news is distracting you a lot. Exactly. And let's look at the ones that are the big players. If you want to talk about big corruption, we're talking about trillions. We're talking about hundreds of billions. And then you talk about some little teeny island, Greece. Yeah, there's corruption there. There's corruption everywhere. And yeah, people have evaded taxes like they do all over the world, but they're certainly not lazy. And you certainly cannot take the work standard that Ayn Rand advocates and that people in Manhattan advocate. Work, 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 work. Get as much as you can, as fast as you can. I live in Los Angeles. I'm going to stop and get another coffee. I've got, I've had five coffees today, you know, maybe a little bit of Coke with dinner and a couple martinis. Work, 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 work. We got to get more. We got to get more. It's like, you know, more, more, faster, faster, more, more, faster, more. I mean, maybe it's true that in the Mediterranean country, people understand that if you take a break during the day and take a rest, take a nap, take a siesta to get out of the hot sun, maybe there's some sense to that. You know, maybe there's some sense to not having your entire life revolve around working and gaining and more and more and more. You know, how about living and having a good diet and enjoying looking out over the ocean? You know, that's something that I really feel is lost. You just you put your finger on it because in the end, in our final moments that we will all have on this earth, we know that the most important thing in life is love for the people around you mm-hmm. and your family, right? Mm-hmm. And if one can make that a living reality while you're still alive, then surely that is not doing wrong. But some people... Uh, some some power structures would have us believe that those things are, uh, you know, are, are perverted, that a desire to have those things uh, makes you lazy and corrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly as a person that was born in South Africa and that had traveled in Africa, and one perceives all the negative media and, and attitudes towards Africa, and, you know, they talk about uh, banana republics and they talk about... Mm-hmm. You know, corrupt African leaders, and then you, you know, as you make the point, let's look at where the corruption really comes from. Let's see where it originates and where it is practiced most vehemently. Mm-hmm. I don't think that. Imagine you and me, John, were really corrupt individuals, and we came up with a corrupt plan. Now the IMF and the European Central Bank are not going to fund your and my corruption <laughs> because what can two guys like us offer them, you know, nothing. So I don't think the agree with you. I mean, yeah, what, what power do we have? But I think when it comes to hosting Olympic games and when it comes (laughs) to to building contracts and when it comes to special preferential treatment for your businesses and your banks, I think the IMF had as much hand in whatever corruption did happen 
in Greece to get them in the current situation. So, yeah, your point is good. Your point is good. If one watches Fox, you know, if you watch Rupert Murdoch's version of it, you're going to believe that it's the Greek people who did that to themselves. Yes. (laughs) I would go so far as to say that the European Union was engineered to destroy the wealth of some of these Mediterranean countries and some of the other countries to steal, or let's just put it another way, or and or to rob so much from them that, again, the few there in Germany and London and the U.S. or wherever, the few, once again, were able to rob and to profit while the masses suffered. I I certainly believe that that's uh, within the realm of possibility. That is in the realm of possibility. It's a plausible argument. Um, there is evidence for it, you know, that, that you and I don't have time this, this time around to get into. Um, I think it is a consequence of central banking. I think it is a consequence of centralization because, as you know, the the burden of centralization, the burden of having power is that you have to be vigilant to challenges to that power. Now, if you're not willing to decentralize the power and make a better living for everybody, mm-hmm. then it becomes a case of morbid and paranoid control of people and territories and 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 making examples of people to instill fear. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. That is what we're witnessing in Europe. Now, to, to relate it back to Bitcoin, you know, there are people in there are people who are involved in Bitcoin who do not get the decentralization principle, who do not much care for the censorship resistance because what they're seeing is a payment network that can make them money as consultants and that can be faster faster and more more and they Mm -hmm. there are people who are advocating that bitcoin people who are actively involved in its development and and in its direction in a way because they are influential and they, they they're knowledgeable people who are saying that Bitcoin must compete with Visa. Hmm. And this is so funny because, you know, (laughs) speaking as we do, having the world view that we do of of a majority world and a minority world, we can clearly see that the people power of Bitcoin allows us, uh, will eventually turn the centralized system upside down. Mm -hmm. Yet we have people who are campaigning. There are people active in Bitcoin, who would like to see it facilitate coffee transactions at Starbucks, you know, and if it cannot be faster, it's not going to be able to compete with Visa. And that to me is ludicrous thinking. It shows how people can have eyes and not see Hmm. something as blatant and as, as wonderful, as innovative as Bitcoin, you know, that they would want to squash it in a box that they'd want to make it a servant of a system that does them no good. Yeah, yeah, that's really well put. And I, I think that as we see Bitcoin move into the future, I think we will see uh, those central authorities for which we have disdain. I think we will see some of them co-opting. We're already seeing it co-opting Bitcoin and blockchain technologies. And I think we will see the same old battle that we've always seen between good and evil. There will be the good use of Bitcoin and there will be the evil use of Bitcoin and blockchain technologies. And of course, I don't think there's any way out of that. I think this battle will persist. It will play out in Bitcoin. 
Um, you know, if we take a popular myth about it, the, 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 the Star Wars uh, uh, episodes, hmm, yes. um, you know, it was interesting that the Emperor Palpatine had, had achieved his power and he had, he, had, he had done his checkmate on the galaxy by hmm. roping in what was called the, 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 the Trade Confederation. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, because he knew that through trade, he could manipulate uh, much wider forces and, and play much stronger political games. And there are people who are saying that Bitcoin is for trade. It is for, uh, it is for uh, competing with the banks. It should be put to service of the banks. And I think that, you know, when we speak like that, it sounds very, you know, one can easily have the reaction that, oh, no, this must never happen. And I believe oh, there is no need for fear because Bitcoin is a prototype and it will always exist in the way that we find most beneficial, whether that is a version two or another altcoin that, that that embodies the best aspects of censorship resistance and of decentralization and of the mathematical proof that we want for our transactions. I think it is, it will always exist. Hmm. It might not be the same Bitcoin of today, but it will, it will always be there. The genie cannot be put back in the bottle. <laughs> Those are encouraging words. I love that. So, let me ask you before we go, Venzen, if someone had to dedicate a song for you, a special song uh, that might embody <laughs> what you do as a Bitcoin trader. Is there a special song request that you would have? Yes, there is. And, um, you know, I love all music. And um, your uh, city of uh, Nashville has made some incredible songs that the whole, the whole world has listened to. And uh, there's one particular that applies to trading. It applies to speculation whether it's business or Bitcoin trading or whatever. And I like the song, The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> That's so funny. And, <laughs> you did? And, yes, I did. Well, but when you, as you started saying that, I realized, oh, it's got to be The Gambler. You've got to, you got to know when to hold them, know when to hold fold them, them right? <laughs> and, you know, this is funny, man. When I first moved here, I moved on to Music Row, and I moved here for music, um, and I've had some limited success, but it's a difficult town, the music business. But it's so funny because right there on Music Row, for whatever reason, that first number I had, I can almost remember the phone number, 279-5370. I came home one time, and I still had an answering machine. This is back in the year 2000. And on my answering machine was a voice message from Kenny Rogers. And he had dialed he had dialed the wrong number, and he was talking about his upcoming performance and how the the suit coat that he was going to be wearing didn't have the right uh, colors and sequins on it and stitching on it, and he was a little bit upset about it. But anyway, so that's my brush with fame with Kenny Rogers was that I got a voicemail from Kenny Rogers, even though he did not intend to send that to me. Well, you know, um, I would love to play that song in this episode. Uh, the gambler it's a great song but i don't <laughs> i don't know if legally i can without paying royalties to uh, kenny rogers or the kenny rogers empire but I, i'll tell you what i'm going to do i'm going to introduce my song that i wrote some time back uh called the bitcoin trader 
And I actually came out with this song. Right. I actually came out with this song um, last year, and I wanted to put it on the show. And right about the time I was ready to put it on the show, that company that we had had visit us here in Nashville, Bitcoin Trader, they went under and ripped a lot of people off, took a lot of people's money. So I thought, well, I cannot put out my song, The Bitcoin Trader, after these people have just done this. People are going to associate it with that, right? So I had to wait all of this time, and I had to wait until I could actually interview a real, genuine, thoughtful Bitcoin trader who wasn't just a blowhard and who wasn't just a money-hungry bastard, which a lot of them are, you know. So I am so happy that in this episode I get to introduce this song, The Bitcoin Trader, and have it have it with, uh, with the interview with you, Venzen Kausan, The Bitcoin Trader. Well, thank you very much, and it was very good speaking with you. And I would like to return and and uh, for us to update the view of the market and also to explore some of the things that we had been discussing because uh, you certainly show a lot of uh, uh, perception and thoughtfulness, uh, John, and that'll be a pleasure. Well, you know what? I love talking with people who come from a philosophy of humanitarianism where they genuinely care about other people. And I can tell that that is you. And that really makes me not just feel good, but it encourages me to know that there are people out there who are not just going after the buck. I mean, I understand that you are working to profit in your trading. You're obviously not working to lose. Right. But, you know, I like where you're living now. Um, if I had the money, I would invite myself to come visit you immediately <laughs> and hang out You're there. welcome anytime, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. you're, you're very yeah. kind, man. What does it cost to My live? My house is your house. You're very kind. And what is How much it does it cost to live in Thailand? You know, this is the amazing thing. I'd never experienced anything like this in my life. You know, growing up in South Africa, it's uh, one faces people in dire economic need, mm-hmm. people with no job, people with no hope of a job, people without a house. Um, And while the fat cats in government, you know, whether it's the previous apartheid uh, government or or the current government are living it up and and having multi-million parties, you know, for birthdays and things, Mm -hmm. there are people who have no hope of education or food or or, uh, a similar uh, style of life. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is is wrong, you know. And having come to to Thailand, I came to um, Thailand by a sequence of events, and and found myself here and decided to stay on. Um, it is one of the cheapest countries I've been in. Food is plentiful, water is plentiful, and with the majority of the country being Buddhists, and Buddhism is not a religion, right? It is a science of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of goodwill amongst the Thai people um, is so great that it reflects in everyday life, you know, in living conditions, in the way that people treat one another, mm. and in the prices you're paying because people want to make a profit on their business, but they don't want to show themselves to be greedy hmm. and i think this is a good way to do business you know yes it, it it helps everybody involved everyone benefits from that kind of mindset i agree wow man that sounds fantastic yeah so come over when you're ready you're welcome <laughs> thank you so much 
I really appreciate that, man. And thank you so much for taking time out of your morning uh, to interview. Listeners, you've been listening to Venson Kausan. He can be found at xbt.social, where you can learn about Bitcoin trading from the experts for a very fair price. And Venson, thank you once again for being on the show. Fantastic. And thanks for having me. Great to speak with you, John. You too, man. I will talk to you soon and definitely have you back on the show before too long. Fantastic. Good luck. Hey, thanks, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Listeners, prepare yourselves for the release of my new hit single, The Bitcoin Trader, featuring yours truly on vocals. Venzen, I am sorry I could not play the song you requested. I hope you'll enjoy this one. And rest assured that you were not the subject of this new song of mine. This song is a tongue-in-cheek tribute to Bitcoin traders everywhere, and it is certainly not meant to be taken seriously. (laughs) Well, except maybe in musical terms. Well, I'm, well, I'm, well, I'm the Bitcoin trader, navigator of the Bitcoin sea. I'm a real motivator when it comes to making money for me. And I might go short or long, but I like to tell everybody that I've never been wrong. I'm the Bitcoin trader, come on and hear me sing my song. Well, I made about a quarter million dollars on the old Mount Cox. And I jumped that ship about a year before it hit the rocks. I put a little into LTC, then I doubled and I bought a place in Waikiki. I'm the Bitcoin trader, come on and take a look at me. Like a bat out of hell I'm the Bitcoin trader Ka-ching, hear me ring my bell Oh, speed ahead, Captain Ride them a Bitcoin waves Boys, ride them high and low I said I ride them a Bitcoin waves Eve-ho, eve-ho I don't give a damn about no whales Those movie dicks are gonna burn in hell So ride them Bitcoin waves away Eve-ho, here we go I said ride them a Bitcoin waves Boys, ride them high and low I said I ride them a Bitcoin waves Eve-ho, eve-ho I ain't scared of no shark attack Almighty that I don't get hacked. Pray to God Almighty that I don't get hacked. Pray to God Almighty that I don't get hacked today. I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Venzen Kausan. 
Venzen continues to educate and enlighten us with his Bitcoin market updates that can be found by going to xbt.social.com. And of course, thank you to our sponsor, Moonshine Cowboy Bootwax. Moonshine Cowboy Bootwax is made in small batches right here in East Nashville, Tennessee by two hardworking entrepreneurs with a combined life experience of over 100 years. The first all-natural, 100% non-toxic bootwax. Get yours today by going to moonshinebootwax.com. And to hear more of me, if you haven't already heard enough, check out my new podcast, East Nashville Now, which can be found by going to www.soundcloud.com forward slash east hyphen Nashville hyphen now. And I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word. And today the magic word is trader. That's T R A. D-E-R. Trader, as in the sentence, Venzen Kaosan is my all-time favorite Bitcoin trader. Thanks for being here, Venzen. We need some humanity in this whole thing. Listeners, thank you so much for being here with me again today. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Leave me a little tip. Your tips really do help keep the lights on and coffee in the kettle. I'm pretty much a volunteer here, folks. So help me keep the motivation going, please. And remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Do something, y'all. Make your voices heard. Write something. Say something. Get it done and get it out there. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things ought to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows
doors. Everybody knows till everybody knows your name. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure. Everybody knows your name. Sing it. Oh Lord, pass me some more. Oh Lord, before I have to go. Oh Lord, pass me some more.